everyone, and welcome to the November 15th edition of the WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Earlier this month, the 5th District U.S. Court of Appeals granted an emergency stay of the requirement by the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration that workers be vaccinated by January 4 or face mask-wearing requirements and weekly tests. The White House expects the new regulation to impact over 80 million workers in private sector businesses. But a case filed by the Texas Attorney General was joined by the court into a master case, which included several other states in the Fifth Circuit, as well as a long list of large employers who also filed several separate actions seeking an injunction. The judge who issued the order wrote that, because the petitions give cause to believe there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate, the mandate is hereby stayed pending further action by the court. The parties were ordered to respond to the stay motion the following week. The Louisiana Attorney General said the action stops President Joe Biden from moving forward with his unlawful overreach. However, the Solicitor of Labor said the U.S. Department of Labor is confident its legal authority to issue the emergency temporary standard on vaccination and testing is valid. The brief filed by several staffing companies in a companion case lays out the essential theories supporting the order. Of the nine emergency temporary standards published prior to this year, three were not challenged. Of the six that were challenged, only one was fully upheld and most were stayed prior to enforcement. They went on to claim that OSHA has once again acted illegally because the emergency regulation violates the non-delegation doctrine under the U.S. Constitution. Such circuit decisions normally apply to states within a district, and this district would be Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas in this case. But the language employed by the judge gave the decision a national scope. And the Court of Appeal clarified the math for calculating the outcome of subrogation recoveries. In this case, the defendant, Salvador Guzman, rear-ended the plaintiff, Mitchell Hunter Oaks's vehicle. Mr. Oaks' employer's workers' comp insurance carrier, Liberty Insurance Corporation, paid over a quarter million dollars for his treatment. Oaks filed a civil action against Mr. Guzman and his employer, Progressive Transportation Services. Liberty Mutual filed a complaint and intervention seeking to recover a lien for the workers' compensation benefits paid to the plaintiff. But Liberty subsequently assigned its $256,000 workers' compensation lien to the defendants and was dismissed from the case. Before trial, the defendant served what is called an offer to settle with Mr. Oaks for $200,000, but it was rejected by him. This offer was made pursuant to Civil Code of Civil Procedure Section 998. That code section provides sanctions against a party who rejects an offer in the event they do not get a more favorable outcome after a trial. 
and in this case Mr. Oakes, the plaintiff, did not obtain a more favorable result. The jury returned a verdict of $115,000 in his favor, much less than the $200,000 offer. The plaintiff then filed a motion for attorney fees and litigation expenses to be deducted from the verdict under Labor Code Section 3856, Subdivision B, and he claimed a $50,600 fee, which was 44% of the jury verdict pursuant to his contingency agreement, and nearly $29,000 in costs. The defendants opposed the motion for fees and moved to tax the plaintiff's post offer Section 998 costs, arguing he should not recover fees and post offer, co- offer costs because the jury verdict did not exceed the defendant's 998 offer. Thus, the course calculated plaintiff's award plus costs and fees as slightly more than $166,000. The trial court awarded defendant costs of nearly $175,000 under CCP 998 altogether. The court then concluded that because of this mathematical formula, the defendant has a net gain over the plaintiff of $8,754, meaning the defendants receive money from the plaintiff now and thereby becomes the prevailing party, which is the party with a net monetary recovery. And the Court of Appeal affirmed this mathematical formula in the partially public case, published case of Oaks versus Progressive Transportation Services. The purpose of CCP Section 998 is to encourage settlement by providing a strong financial disincentive to a party, whether it be a plaintiff or a defendant, who fails to achieve a better result than that party could have reached by accepting his or her opponent's settlement offer. The parties on appeal disagreed on the sequence in which the two statute issues should be applied and which statute takes priority in application. The Court of Appeal concluded that applying the cost-shifting provision of CCP 998 before the Labor Code Section 3856 on fees and costs is consistent with applicable case authority. Therefore, it saw no basis for overturning the $8,754 judgment entered in the defendant's favor. An Orange County Superior Court judge ruled earlier this month that four drug companies cannot be held liable for California's opioid epidemic. That case marked the first trial win for any drug companies in the more than 3,300 lawsuits filed by states and local governments over the drug abuse crisis that the U.S. government says led to nearly 500,000 opioid overdose deaths. The only other opioid trial to reach a verdict resulted in an Oklahoma judge ordering Johnson & Johnson to pay $465 million to the state back in 2019. However, this week the Oklahoma Supreme Court just reversed that verdict, finding the trial judge misinterpreted the state's public nuisance law. The Attorney General of Oklahoma sued three prescription opioid manufacturers in the case 
and requested that the district court hold opioid manufacturers liable for violating Oklahoma's public nuisance statute. The state settled with two of the parties and eventually dismissed all claims against J&J except public nuisance. There was then a 33-day bench trial with the single issue being whether J&J was responsible for creating a public nuisance in the marketing and selling of its opioid products. The state argued J&J overstated the benefits of opioid use, downplayed the dangers, and failed to disclose the lack of evidence supporting long-term use. But the district court held J&J liable under Oklahoma's public nuisance statute, and J&J appealed. The question before the Oklahoma Supreme Court was whether the conduct of an opioid manufacturer in marketing and selling its products constituted a public nuisance. In a 5-to-1 ruling, the High Court held that the district court's expansion of public nuisance law went too far. They concluded that the Oklahoma public nuisance law does not extend to the manufacturing, marketing, and selling of prescription opioids. They noted that stopping the opioid crisis is a laudable goal, but it cannot be done by reshaping the public nuisance law that has traditionally been used to address discrete, localized problems. The district court's expansion of public nuisance law allows courts to manage public policy matters that should be dealt with by the legislative and executive branches, the branches that are more capable than the courts to balance the competing interests at play in societal problems. The majority said the High Court has followed criminal and property-based limitations on the public nuisance law for 100 years. But the dissent writes that he would have reversed the verdict and sent the case back to the trial court for a new trial. The Justice Department filed a lawsuit against Uber Technologies for charging wait time fees to passengers who, because of disability, need more time to enter a car. The lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, and alleges that Uber violated Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which prohibits discrimination by private transportation companies like Uber. Uber began charging passenger wait time fees in a number of cities back in 2016, eventually expanding the policy nationwide. These wait time fees start two minutes after the Uber car arrives at the pickup location and are charged until the car begins its trip. The department's complaint alleges that Uber violates the ADA by failing to reasonably modify its wait time fee policy for passengers who, because of a disability, need more than two minutes to get in or out of an Uber car. The department's lawsuit alleges that even when Uber is aware that a passenger's need for additional time is clearly disability-based, Uber starts charging a wait time fee at the two-minute mark. The lawsuit seeks an order that Uber stop discriminating against individuals with disabilities and train its staff and drivers on the ADA, as well as pay money damages to people subjected to the illegal wait time fees, along with a civil penalty to vindicate the public's interest in eliminating disability discrimination.
And in regulatory news, Los Angeles Police Chief Michael Moore said he is ready to fire any of the department's 12,000 employees who refuse to get vaccinated against COVID-19 or get tested twice a week for the disease. Moore's stance contrasts with Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who recently went so far as to call a news conference to blast a similar vaccine mandate enacted by Los Angeles County. The county sheriff predicted mass departures among his deputies should he force them to comply, a warning also made by police union officials in Pittsburgh and Chicago. On November 4, the LAPD began having commanding officers personally deliver notices to 3,500 unvaccinated employees, including 2,239 who had requested an exemption, informing them of the requirements. And so far, the LAPD policy appears to be working. More than 60% of the unvaccinated employees have been officially notified one-on-one of the COVID-19 rules, and as of early Monday, all but four had agreed to get vaccinated or request an exemption. However, the LAPD has met some resistance to its COVID-19 rule, including a request for a temporary restraining order by the union representing its officers, which was denied by a judge on Wednesday. A 14-year veteran of the police department, who was among those staging a recent protest across from City Hall, also predicted the vaccine requirement would spark a mass exodus of fellow employees. The LAPD is probing photos posted on social media of the three LAPD officers walking toward a vaccine mandate protest in uniform. Moore said that if anyone went to the protest on duty and in uniform and participated in the demonstration, it would be wrong. And in a related story, Angelinos seemed to be fighting back against the vaccine mandate. Thousands of people gathered outside Los Angeles City Hall to protest COVID-19 vaccination mandates on Monday, the day the city began enforcing some of the nation's strictest vaccination verification rules for businesses. L.A. now requires proof of full COVID-19 vaccination to enter indoor restaurants, shopping centers, movie theaters, hair and nail salons, gyms, museums, bowling alleys, performance venues, and other spaces. The Los Angeles Unified School District is now being sued over a requirement for employees to get their COVID-19 shots. The Health Freedom Defense Fund, a Wyoming-based organization that advocates against mandatory masking, testing, and vaccinations, and six LAUSD employees filed a lawsuit against the district last week challenge LA Unified's staff vaccination mandate. Attorneys for the plaintiffs challenged the need for the COVID-19 vaccines, stating that they do not prevent infections or transmission of the coronavirus and that their effectiveness wanes after several months. The complaint also states that the vaccination mandate violates an individual's right to personal autonomy, self-determination, bodily integrity, and the right to reject medical treatment as required by the 14th Amendment. The district is also requiring students 
12 and older to receive their first vaccine dose by November 21st and the second by December 19th. LEOSD has been hit, hit with at least two lawsuits over its student mandate. Attorneys for one of the suits filed by the California Chapter of Children's Health Defense and the Protection of the Educational Rights of Kids submitted a motion this week seeking a preliminary injunction to halt LAUSD's student mandate. Biden's vaccine or testing mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees went into effect on Friday after the Occupational Safety and Health Administration published the requirements in the Federal Register. Businesses had until January 4th to ensure their employees have received the shots required for full vaccination. The mandate has, however, been stayed pending litigation as noted in our earlier story. But in the meantime, the American Trucking Association pushed back against the mandate to White House officials. They warned that many drivers would quit rather than follow the rules, further disrupting the national supply chain over the holiday season at a time when the industry is already short 80,000 truck drivers. In response to the pushback, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh announced that most truckers are not covered by President Joe Biden's COVID vaccine and testing requirements for private businesses. This was seen as a win for an industry that had warned of potential walkouts that would disrupt already strained supply chains. She said that most truckers are not covered by the mandate because when they're driving a truck, they're in a cab, and they are by themselves. The mandate exempts workers who do not report to a workplace where other individuals such as co-workers or customers are present. People who work from home or exclusively outdoors are also exempt. The vaccination and testing requirements would apply to truck drivers who work in teams, however, such as two people in a truck cab, or to those who interact with people in buildings at their destinations or starting points. Despite the wording of the exemptions, the Trucking Association still criticized the mandate, accusing OSHA of using extraordinary authority unwisely, applying it across all industries at an arbitrary threshold of 100 employees that fails to factor in actual risk. The association is weighing all options of recourse to ensure every segment of their industry's workforce is shielded from the unintended consequences of what it said was a misguided mandate. And in medical news, a month ago, the coronavirus seemed headed for a long winter's nap in masked and well-vaccinated California. Governor Newsom boasted that the Golden State continued to lead the nation as the only state to reach the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's yellow or moderate tier of community virus transmission. But news reports say that COVID-19 cases are not falling in California anymore. They have climbed back up to the CDC's blood-red high level of virus transmission as the highly contagious Delta variant continues to wreak havoc. And the Bay Area has not been immune, 
as most Bay Area counties that hope to reach the yellow moderate level by now remain stubbornly stuck in orange. Marin and Santa Cruz counties, which had reached the yellow level, are now back up to orange. San Francisco is the only county still in yellow. Currently, 19 states have increased transmission, including several like California. So the question is, why are not the, Cal the Golden State Staters reaping more reward for their adherence to health guidance? Health experts say it's not because the health guidance is not sound. They say outbreaks burn out once the virus runs out of enough people without immunity to infect, and people can gain immunity both from infection recovery and vaccinations. With higher vaccination levels than in the southeast, California saw a smaller wave of cases over the summer as the Delta variant ripped through the country mostly infecting those who have not been vaccinated. Now that they've recovered, they have immunity, cutting off avenues for the virus to spread. States in the southeast that were hammered with big summer case surges now are faring better simply because, with their combination of vaccinations and infections, they have fewer left who are susceptible to the virus than in California. And other factors also are in play. The southeast's hot, humid summers drive people to the air-conditioned indoors where the virus spreads easily, while Californians enjoyed moderate weather out in the surf and sand. But the autumn chill is now bringing Californians inside where they have a greater risk of infection. A new study just published in Science analyzed the records of nearly 800,000 U.S. veterans of all ages and found that all three main COVID-19 vaccines experienced dramatic drops in efficacy over six months. Prior to the study, three reports of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control in August 2021 demonstrated protection against infection had declined in midsummer as the Delta variant rose to dominance. But the CDC said that protection against hospitalization and death remained high. This phenomenon has been most comprehensively monitored in Israel, where high levels of transmission of the Delta variant led to a resurgent outbreak in mid-June 2021, despite a successful nationwide campaign to vaccinate the population in that country. This new VA study concluded that as the Delta variant rapidly became the dominant strain worldwide, the ability of Moderna's two-dose vaccination to protect infections dropped from 89% to 58%. Pfizer's went from 87% to 45%. And J&J's single-dose vaccine went from 86% to just 13%. But according to the VA report, the vaccine's ability to prevent death in older Americans remained somewhat robust over the same period. Among veterans 65 and older who got the Moderna vaccine, those who developed a breakthrough infection were 76% less likely to die, compared with unvaccinated veterans of the same age. Older veterans who got the Pfizer-BioNTech infection, uh, BioNTech product, were 70% less likely to die. And when older vets 
<clears throat> who got a single jab of the J&J &J vaccine suffered a breakthrough infection. They were 52% less likely to die than their peers who did not get any shots. A new concept known as lean healthcare is the application of lean ideas in healthcare facilities to minimize waste in every process, procedure, and task through an ongoing system of improvement. Using these older lean principles, all members of the health organization, from clinicians to op operations and, operate and administration staff, continuously strive to identify areas of waste and eliminate anything that does not add value for patients. Taiachi Ono of Toyota was the originator of the lean principles decades ago, and his methods have been applied to manufacturing across the globe. He described eight areas of waste that occur in every industry. Now, the new study found that the lean methodology is a suitable one to accelerate patient recovery by reducing the time between on-the-job accidents and the beginning of physical therapy treatment. The paper was published in the TQM Journal. The study identifies ways to address inefficiency in the workers' comp system, included that eliminating pre-authorization for physical therapy and the additional lead time it creates can improve health outcomes and reduce claim costs. One of the authors, Omar Taha, in collaboration with his peers, designed and deployed multiple case studies to better understand the journey of an injured worker within the workers' comp system. The study was in partnership with a national workers' comp healthcare provider to conduct direct observations in five of their clinics across two states, Florida and Pennsylvania. Researchers analyzed the data of 263, 263 injured workers with eight or more physical therapy visits who were treated at clinics in both states over 31 days. The research concluded that activities associated with the pre-authorization of treatment were the primary non-value-added activity from the perspective of the injured worker based on delayed physical therapy treatment. Removing pre-authorization requirements could significantly reduce the lead time for treatment of these injured workers. For example, an injured worker could visit their referring physician and complete their first physical therapy session within the same office visit. Half of the injured Pennsylvania workers in the researcher's data set attended their first physical therapy treatment with less than a day of obtaining a prescription, whereas injured Florida workers required more than five days. In Florida, injured workers needed an average of 40 days to complete eight physical therapy visits, compared to only 28 days to complete the same number of visits in Pennsylvania. According to the study, the disparity between the two states is likely due to Pennsylvania eliminating pre-authorization activities. The findings also corroborate that lean is an effective methodology in identifying and removing administrative inefficiencies from the treatment process. This could accelerate patients' recovery, 
reduce administrative burden on healthcare providers, and improve overall claim costs. Patterns emerged that showed inefficiency in the information flow between insurance companies, referring care providers, and treatment care providers. This negatively impacts the delivery of care for injured workers. This was the first study to apply lean methodology to workers' compensation. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Skarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.